You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. So if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And we have, over the last few weeks, been looking at this passage of Scripture just two verses, and um, it has been hopefully a blessing to you. Uh, it's perhaps the most famous uh, Old Testament text concerning Christmas that we hear so often. Uh, if you have sent out any Christmas cards this year, you probably have seen this on the cover of one of those Christmas cards, um, or at least quoted in some Christmas movie. This is a very famous passage of Scripture, and rightly so, It tells us of this one who's coming to reign as king, the one who is the fulfillment of the prophecy to David, and that is that his throne would be established forever. Jesus is that king. But as as I've shared with you each and every week over the last several weeks, there's a particular reason why I'm coming to this passage in particular this Christmas. And that is because we live in a world where we've had to face all kinds of uncertainty lately all kinds of difficulty, all kinds of problems. And it would seem, especially lately, over the last year and a half or so, as if the world is spinning out of control. And we need to be reminded again and again, as God's people even, we need to be reminded of the greatness of our God and that He's not at all out of control. So my hope and my prayer over the last several uh, weeks has been that that we would come to the place that this would not only be something that we believe with all of our hearts, that God is sovereign, but that we would have our entire lives and our entire existence shaped by that reality, that our whole life would be changed by the reality that Jesus is the king on the throne, king of kings and Lord of lords. We face all of that, all of that uncertainty. It's very easy to become overwhelmed and and worried and even fearful. I, like many of you, have been frustrated over the course of the last year and a half and even angry at times and impatient. But all of those things are met with the reality that we have a God who is in charge over all things. And as quickly as they come, they go as we think about his care in our lives. So in preparation for Christmas, we've been here and I shared with you over the last three weeks that we've had three goals. One, that you would trust God more deeply. And I hope that you do. I hope that in seeing who God is and who Jesus is in this text, that it's a reminder of who he is and therefore that you trust him more. That you submit to him. If he is King of kings and Lord of lords, it means that He's an absolute authority over our lives. And we owe Him our allegiance because of who He is. So I hope that you submit to God more fully. And as a Christian who has 
renounced all things and, and come to be crucified with Christ and live your life for Him, I, I hope that you as a result have served God more passionately over the last three weeks. That there's a greater sense of urgency in you to find what it is that God would have you to do in your life for the sake of His kingdom and His will and His glory and that you would give everything that you are to it. I hope that those are the responses that these names so far have stirred in you. But one final name does come to us this morning, and that is the Prince of Peace. And I don't know about you, but this text for me has kind of been like sitting a, a kid sitting at a, a fireworks show. I, I don't know if you've ever been to a fireworks show, but... You know, you, you, you see that first firework go off and, and it's just beautiful and you're kind of wowed as a kid. And then there's that moment where it looks like everything's coming to a climax and you say, well, this must be the finale, right? This has got to be the best part of the show. And then it just keeps going. And it just keeps going. And then there's this other big part and you go, ah, that's, that's got to be the grand finale. And, and maybe even in the crowd starts to applause a little bit. And you keep seeing these high moments over and over and over again until you really do get to the grand finale. And you're left at the end of the show just kind of staring into the sky like, wow. This is exactly the way I feel looking at these four names of Jesus. And we do get to the grand finale this morning. And perhaps some of the most practical information, practical um, uh, messages that we've seen in the entire study. So, the Prince of Peace, it is just as glorious and more than a fireworks show. So if you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word as we see Jesus as this Prince of Peace. The Bible says in Isaiah 9 and verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. That you reign on the throne of heaven and earth. That there is no king above you, no king before you, nor will there be any king after you. That at the end of time, one thing will remain. That you are this one that we read about here in Isaiah 9. And that you are our King, King Jesus. Lord, your word says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we want to confess that this morning with your word. We desire to see you for who you are. To know you as, as Savior and Lord of our lives. And to realize this peace that your word describes. We, we want to not just hear about it, but to sense it deeply in our hearts, to feel the treasure that it is to know peace with God. And I pray that if there is one here this morning who is not at peace with you, that this would be the day that they meet you, King Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and give you their lives and know the greatest peace they've ever known. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So again, as we look at Isaiah 9, it's incredibly important, if not of the utmost importance, that we see this context, the condition of the world. Because it is good news that Jesus is all of these things. But it is even greater news that Jesus is all of these things despite the world that he came into and the world that he created that sin so desperately broke. So when we get to the last two verses of chapter 8, just to remind you the kinds of things that we see in the land, it says in verse 21 that they will pass through the land after all that happened to the nation of Israel, all of their salvation, with their sin against God and their rebellion against God, this is their condition. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged. And they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This, by way of reminder, was the condition of God's people, of all people on the face of the earth who had seen his faithfulness, who had experienced all that He had done in their lives and, and, and experienced and received all of the instruction from His Word. These were the people who rebelled against Him. And in total disregard for God, they ended up in utter darkness. People turned from Him. And now they find themselves in total brokenness. And this has just been the particularly plain thing to me this week. As we look at the world around us, I just think about all of the brokenness that we're facing with all of the revelation of God that we have today, and yet we remain in the same kind of darkness by and large in this land just as they did in their land. And what happens is whenever we find ourselves in this darkness, in this brokenness, instead of turning to God for help, we actually turn our face against Him and complain about the condition that we find ourselves in. We turn against our King and our God. And all we end up doing is finding more distress and more gloom and more pain and more brokenness. And then we look to the world around us, we turn our faces to the earth, and we try this plan and that plan and and this solution and that solution, and nothing seems to work. Because we're always seeking a self-fulfilling pathway to happiness and wholeness. But the end result is always more and more brokenness when we try to find these measures on our own. Well, that's how the story leaves off at the end of chapter 8. And there is nothing that we should find that would keep us from being in the same position apart from God having mercy on us. Praise God that He did not leave us in our darkness and in our brokenness. Amen? That in the midst of the most deep darkness that God came and He shined light into that darkness. And this is what Isaiah 9 is all about. That even in the midst of this deep spiritual darkness, there is good news that hope is coming. And verse 9 begins that there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Why is it that good news has come? Well, 
Isaiah tells us in verse 6, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And that son is king. And unlike any other human king, the government, the control, the authority rests fully upon his shoulders without fail. He is a king who is sovereign and peaceful in his reign. And that reign has no end. He has a throne and a kingdom that he will establish on his own. Nobody establishes it for him. He upholds it by the very word of his power with justice and righteousness. And the Bible tells us that the very zeal of the Lord is the one who accomplishes this. We know that son to be Jesus. And so from this text rises one of the most important truths in all of Scripture. And that is the fact that the only hope for the dark world that we are in even now today is the rule and reign of King Jesus. It's the only hope. It's the only way that we receive healing. It's the only way that peace comes. It's the only way that fulfillment of the prophecies of God, the promises of God comes is through Jesus. And so we, we pray for the hallowing of Christ's name. We pray for the coming of His kingdom and the doing of His will in order that the world might know the hope that can only be found in Him. In order that the world might know the hope that is found in Jesus and so they would turn their hearts and their minds and cry out to a holy God for mercy and for grace and that they would submit their lives to this One who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the message of hope and the hope of Christmas. The question about this King that we've continued to come to each and every week is what kind of king is he? This is where this text is such good news. Because the announcement of Isaiah proclaims both the reality of Jesus being king, and we need a king, don't we? We need a king that would rule well. But it's not just the reality of his reign, but the nature of it. What does it look like for him to be king? What changes in our lives and how is it that this king rules? And we've seen three names so far. One, that Jesus is wonderful counselor. Namely, that he's supernaturally wise and perfectly good in all that he does. He reigns well. His counsel, his decrees, his commands are always the best. They're always the most beneficial. He never gives a bad command or bad instruction. He is a wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. Meaning, He's sovereignly able to do all that He intends to do. He never fails. Everything that He intends to do, He is more than powerful and able to do. His nature is that He is in complete authority and has complete sovereign power. He is our El Gabor, remember? The one who reigns supreme on the battlefield, the victor over all things, the, the hero, the champion, the one who does not fail to win the battle. Like a war hero, he rides out before his people, and he fights the battle before us, and ultimately 
reigns victorious. He is mighty God. Jesus is wonderful counselor, mighty God. And as we saw last week, he is everlasting father, the eternal God. The one who is the source of all things, who has no beginning and no end. He is everlasting. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And that everlasting nature includes His love, His faithfulness, His care, His discipline, all of the ways that He acts as Father to His children. None of that has an end. Every single one of our earthly dads one day will fail us. Every single one of our earthly dads one day will not be here with us. And yet this father is everlasting and he is perfect and his reign is forever. But there is one final title here and that is the title Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. It is in the Hebrew Shar Shalom, char meaning administrator or ruler, shalom meaning peace. And so twice in these two verses, we have this word peace in context. First, it's there in verse six in the name that Christ is given, right? His name shall be called Prince of Peace. That's the first place. It's his title, And this title is something, by the way, as in all of these other titles, that he will be called. It's not something that he was given. It's something that people will call him. Why? Because he will have a reign that is characterized by peace. So the world will look and notice that this one reigns in peace. And more importantly, his people will see him as one. Those who come under his reign will see him as one who reigns with peace. His character embodies the title. And so he is called the Prince of Peace. That's the first time. The second time is in verse 7. And it describes the nature of his kingdom. So notice that. It's not describing him here. It's describing his kingdom. Verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government... And of peace, there will be no end. The nature of Christ's kingdom, if you're a part of this kingdom, the experience is everlasting peace. It's not times of peace where we experience peace and then we experience times of brokenness and of suffering and of pain. It is a kingdom of everlasting peace. Only peace, perfect peace forever and ever and ever. Can you imagine this? To be under the rule and reign of Christ and to never, ever know conflict. This is the experience of Christ's kingdom. And the rest of the text then establishes that and fences, puts a fence around it, so to speak, in order to protect it. The throne of Jesus is established forever, so he rules. It's established and upheld with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The kind, of dis- the kind of peace described here is a kingdom in which peace is protected on authority that never wavers. So our peace, the ability to have peace in this new kingdom, rests fully upon the ability of Christ to keep it perfectly. At the same time, that peace 
is not only a perfect union with God, it is a perfect union with one another and with these ideas of justice and righteousness. It's not a peace with wrongdoing. It is a peace with perfect righteousness. And this is who our king is. Isn't that an incredibly attractive thought? <laughs> I mean, as you live this life, we, we live this life together, right? We live every day in the midst of a world that is incredibly lacking in peace. In fact, you might say that the world around us is in constant turmoil, right? I mean, if you don't believe it, just turn on Fox News this afternoon. You go ahead and, and you will be stressed out in a matter of minutes, right? Not to mention any of the other news stations or just turn on a football game. There's plenty of them coming up. I mean, we, we live in a world that seems like everybody is at war with one another. We're about to have family gatherings, right? Most of you will gather in your homes to open gifts. And what do the holidays tend to do? They tend to attract all the people in our family that we get along with and all the people in our families we don't get along with, right? right? I mean, you guys can laugh, but it's true, right? And if you don't believe me, just wait. It's coming, right? Those of you who have young children, eventually you'll have in-laws, and it'll, it's just going to, I'm just telling you, it's going to get crazy. Just go ahead and prepare. We live in a world of constant turmoil. Rarely do we experience peace in this life. Life is a constant war of, of kingdoms. You, you might call it kingdoms in conflict. Amber has a, a mug or a shirt, um, and I don't remember which, but on the, on the front of it, it says chaos coordinator, right? I mean, we, we just, we know what it's like to just kind of live our lives in this turmoil. We're more stressed out, I would say, in this generation, perhaps than any generation that's preceded us. Everything seems like it's in turmoil. And it's not just the busyness in our lives, right? There are real culture wars and relational wars that are happening. Some of you right now, this very day, are at war with somebody within your household, be it a spouse, be it a sibling. Some of you extended family in constant turmoil with a mother or a father or a grandparent or an aunt. Like some of you are in active conflict right now. Some of you are having to spend every day fighting for your job for one reason or another. Some of you are fighting every day to maintain your convictions because you go to a, a job or a, or, or a circle of influence where it's hard to be a Christian. It's not the popular thing. and You receive a lot of persecution and it's like sandpaper against sandpaper to even try to be a Christian in the world in which you live. Or think about it on a 30,000 foot view. Our Culture is constantly in political worlds, right? Political wars, right? Cultural wars. We hear all the time about race wars. There is in our own community a war on drugs. There is in our own community a war for children who've been abused, neglected, or abandoned through the foster care program or adoption or what have you. There's a war for families in our culture. For present dads, for dads who will lead according to the Bible, for men who would stand on principle and on integrity. There is a war everywhere around us, and it seems that nothing is ever at rest. Do you feel that with me this morning? 
And yet, peace is an attractive message. When Jesus was born, it is the very announcement of the angels. Do you remember? Luke chapter 2, that I'm sure we will hear tonight from our children, says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then he says how you will find them. And then it tells us that there was a multitude of heavenly hosts. And what was it that they sang? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The message of the gospel certainly is a message of peace Ironically enough, at the very same time, Caesar Augustus was declaring Pax Romana, which is a season of peace in the Roman Empire, which came to a very abrupt ending later. Jesus comes to offer peace and the world is still looking for a way to find it without him. Peace is attractive, but doesn't it seem so elusive? As if it cannot be found in the world in which we live. So few people who actually find it. And when people do find peace, it seems to last for a very short time. And then, just as quickly as it came, it's gone. You might have even said it yourself. I just need some peace. Anybody ever said that? Well, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But if He is the Prince of Peace, then why is it that there is so little peace in the world? Even after 2,000 years of Gospel ministry. Why is something that is so attractive to our minds and our hearts, something that we have such trouble grasping, Even Jesus Himself in Matthew chapter 10, whenever the disciples were kind of perplexed that there was all of this persecution, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Why does it seem that this gospel of peace is so ineffective? I want to submit to you that there are at least two reasons why it seems that way, or it may seem that way to us this morning. And that is that the problem of peace in the world is with our own misunderstanding of the nature of what true peace really is, and our misunderstanding of the ultimate source of our conflict. Those two things... The first, our own misunderstanding of the nature of peace. And second, what the source of our conflict in life really, really is. This text gets after those two things. How do we understand peace? Generally, when we define peace, we define it in a number of ways. Not the least of which is the absence of conflict, right? Generally, when we're talking about peace, this is what we mean. We, we want everybody to just get along. Can't we all just get along, right? We want things to be calm. If we can just keep people from fighting, 
If we can just not offend anybody, if we can just stay united and not hurt people's feelings, then maybe we can achieve real peace. Just keep things at bay, then we'll have real peace. But not only is that impossible, it actually attempts to deal with a deep problem with a surface-level solution. It would be like trying to deal with someone who has a a bad heart by giving them a Band-Aid. It's not going to be effective. It only hides the real problem that lies under the surface with a surface treatment. We might also define peace as political or cultural rest. All of the things that are going on in our nation and outside of our nation, we might think that the best thing we could do is have a peace treaty and then we'll have real peace or maybe intellectual agreement. If we just all believe the same thing and have the same ideas about life and and have the same opinions and you've got to ascend to my opinions or I've got to ascend to yours in order for us to have real peace. Or some of us just simply would be okay with quiet, right? If I could just have some peace and quiet. Moms are going, amen, pastor, amen. I just have some peace and quiet in the house. But none of those things are what biblical peace really is all about. What is the heart of biblical peace? The word here is shalom. You may have heard the word before. It is a greeting in the Hebrew culture among Jews even to this day. It actually was in a greeting then, it still is, if you go to the nation of Israel, you'll hear it. If you know someone who's a Jew, you might have heard it even today or seen it on some TV program. It is a greeting. It's a word that means peace, but it's more than just the idea of the absence of conflict in the Hebrew language. It's the idea of wholeness is a much better picture. For the Hebrew people to give this greeting of shalom is to say, I... I, I Desire for you to have total wholeness in your life. When we think about wholeness as Americans, we think about weight loss strategies and diets. And we think about all of these educational plans and, and economic plans for our nation. But, but we get it, don't we? we? We get what it means to be a well-rounded person. We just don't know how to get there. And what shalom is a picture of is this this well-rounded, holistic kind of peace that comes from a relationship with God in which our relationship with God then changes and determines every other part of our lives. It is to have, it is to have a, a God-centric, a theocentric worldview. To believe that, that God then determines our relationships with one another and our stewardship of our finances and our relationship in the community and, and the way that we live and the choices that we make and the goals that we set in life. It is to change everything. This is what shalom is. Peace. The nature of true peace has God at its core and there is not a part of our lives that it does not touch. We actually tend to be content with lesser forms than that, don't we? Peace and quiet, political rest, and all these other things that we've mentioned, we tend to be content with those things, more temporal things. Why? 
Well, the reason is because of the second issue here. Not only do we misunderstand the nature of what real peace really is, true peace, we misunderstand the source of our ultimate conflict. Can I just free you for a moment this morning that your war in life is not actually with your spouse? Your war in life is not actually your children. It's not a president in the White House. It's not one economic system or another. It's not even against another country. Our war by nature and by choice is actually against God. Notice in verse 21 of the previous chapter, let's just see this again. They get hungry, they get distressed, they get enraged, and who is it that they turn against? They will speak contemptuously. That's not a good thing. (laughs) They will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. It's God's fault. It must be God's fault that I'm in the mess that I'm in. And then they turn their faces downward toward the earth and they look for all kinds of ways in the earth, right? They look to the earth, but behold, everything they find is distress and darkness and gloom and anguish. And what ends up happening is they're drowning in their own misery and brokenness and they have no peace. Why? Because the enemy of their souls actually has become God rather than the one that stands to fight against them. And when we declare war on God, we will never find any rest. The war is actually against God. And some of you feel the weight of that even right now. You're searching for peace in all kinds of different things that are just coming up empty. And can I tell you that you need to hear the good news of God's word. That is the fact that although you and I have declared war on God, that God sent the Prince of Peace to to provide a way for us to be reconciled to the very one that that we've declared war against. The very one. That's the gospel. Like, that is unfathomable. Unfathomable. Why would God love me when I'm launching bombs at him? But he does. And he says, I'm going to restore what you've broken. And I'm going to do it by sending my son. Peace, real peace. And by the way, Jesus is the prince of it. Meaning he's the hero of it. When all of our other methods have failed and all of our other quests have come up empty, at the end of the day, Jesus rides in on his stallion and takes his seat upon the throne and he says, I'm going to be the hero of peace for you. And you're not going to find it anywhere else. And when you find it in me, it's going to be perfect and flawless. Why is it that Jesus is the Prince of Peace? Well, very quickly, and there is so much here. There are four ways that we see Jesus being the Prince of Peace in this passage. We take this shalom and we see it play out in the text. And what 
What nature does it have? What does it look like for, for Jesus to be peace in every area of, her life, of our lives? Because I don't want you to leave here this morning confused about what peace really is. Because some of you are going to walk out of here and you're going to go, Jesus, I got no quiet and calm. I went to church today. But what is, this is different than what you said in your word. So what does this look like? And I don't want you to leave here like that this morning. So what does it look like? Four different things. Follow this closely. Number one, Jesus is the Prince of Peace with God. Jesus is the Prince of Peace with God. If we're going to attack this peace issue, we must attack it with a biblical lens. You cannot begin with all the things you want Jesus to fix and then come hoping he has something that you might be interested in. Rather, you must come to him and say, Jesus, I don't even know how to pray for peace because I don't know what peace is. So help me. In the midst of that, what Jesus says is, your peace begins with shalom. And that is that God would be at the center of everything that you do. And so far, if you're without Christ in this room, so far you've left him out of everything that you do. So that's got to be reversed. So how do I do that? You're asking the wrong question. There is nothing that you or I could do to fix that. Nothing. The quest for real peace does not begin with me. The quest for real peace begins with God. And not even really what God can do for me. But really what he has already done for me. And that is Ephesians chapter 2. What I want to do is take each of these. I want you to see it in this passage. And then I want to try to shed some light on it from another text. So you don't have time to turn there with me this morning unless you feel like you do have time and go ahead. But if you hold your place and go to Ephesians chapter 2, it's in the New Testament maybe about halfway through your New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, this is what the Bible tells us that God did for our peace in sending the Prince of Peace. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Listen along with me. Therefore, remember, he's talking to Christians who were Gentiles, not Jewish, and he says, remember who you were. Who were they? Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the, un, the, the circumcision. In other words, you were an outsider. We don't have time to unpack that. You were an outsider. By the insiders, you were called outsiders. No one liked you. You weren't a part of the people of God. Not only that, it gets worse. That circumcision is only made by the flesh of hands anyway. It doesn't matter supremely. But verse 12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. There's the real issue alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. All of that to say what he ends verse 12 with that with, and that is having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, you were living Isaiah 8 verse 21. That is that you were hungry, distressed, and had turned away from God and to the world and you were in utter darkness. That's who you were But, verse 13, 
Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. And listen to what verse 14 says. For He Himself is our peace. Jesus is peace. Jesus is the only way to find real peace. But He has brought peace through the blood of His cross. Why does that matter? Well, we read on. That we were without God, but in verse 13, Jesus, uh, but now Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. And He has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By the way, the wall that we put up. We put the separation between us and God. So what did He do? He abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, not abolishing the law in the sense of our obedience to it, but ultimately our condemnation by it. And He has done so Making peace that in verse 16, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And you can read on how Jesus has now brought this this separation between us and God. He's brought down the wall of hostility that we created by dying in our place. He took on our Rebellion against God, he took the punishment for our sins and he has said, I'll make a way for you to have peace with God. It strikes me as so odd when people get to the end of their lives and they say, I have made my peace with God. Because we have no ability to make our peace with God. Christ has done it. And he alone can do it. We must trust in Him. This is why Paul says that we are justified by faith. And since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to know peace with God is through faith in Christ. And Jesus does that. He does that as Prince. He does not fail in what He does. So He's the Prince of Peace with God. Secondly, Jesus is the Prince of Peace with truth. He's the Prince of Peace with truth. So notice that he establishes this peace and he upholds it. But he doesn't do so by going, eh, truth doesn't matter so much. Righteousness, no big deal anymore. Justice, no big deal anymore. He says, I'm going to take righteousness and justice by the hand. And I'm going to hold tight to peace and I'm actually going to accomplish both of them in perfection. This cannot be done in human terms. The more we try to stand for the truth, the more it will bring about war. And yet Christ, when He upholds the truth, it destroys all of His enemies and He is left with nothing but a kingdom of perfect peace. There's pervasive injustice in our world, isn't there? And even justice itself has been perverted. And yet, the evidence of God's kingdom is that there is perfect peace and righteousness at the same 
time. That is the only evidence of God's perfect peace and righteousness is when you see them come together. It's interesting that this is actually evidence of the new birth whenever Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. Take you to John 3, verse 18 and following quickly. Notice the difference between a person who knows Christ and a person who doesn't. A person who's been born again and a person who doesn't. Verse 18, whoever believes in him, praise God, is not condemned. Amen, church? You believe in Christ, you're not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Verse 19 says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And listen to the way the world looked for their peace. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. That's not a peaceful action. Hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. See, the the natural mind has declared war on the truth of God. The natural mind hates God. But the redeemed mind, the one who's been born again, verse 21, whoever does does what is true (coughs) comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The one who's been born again comes to peace with the truth of God. Experiences that Jesus reigns and unites both peace and righteousness. We're no longer at war with the truth. It doesn't feel like peace whenever we have to face the ugly of our lives. When we go to battle against those things. But it's interesting that we're willing to do that when we come to faith in Christ. Because we know we are already at peace with God. And so there is kind of this in process where Jesus is bringing all things about our life into truth and righteousness. There's peace being established even as Christ reigns more sovereignly, or at least in our mind's eye and our understanding of it in our lives. So in that sense, Jesus is also the Prince of Peace. Third, Jesus is the Prince of Peace in trouble. He's the Prince of Peace in trouble. So it says that He's coming in His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. Two interesting words. Those words assume that something rises up against this peace that Jesus has come to give. Otherwise, there would be no need to establish it, to uphold it. If there's no threat, you don't need to establish anything, right? You build a house on sand and there's no threat of that sand moving and there's no rainstorm like we had last night. It's probably just going to continue to stand. But the moment it's tested, it has to be established and upheld. This is the kind of peace that Jesus brings because there is a threat against Jesus' peace, at least in the world now. It's under siege, futilely so. You can try to go against God. Ultimately, you will fail. But at the end of the day, it is a peace that ultimately only Christ can uphold, and he upholds it in trouble. That's why he said, I came not to bring a peace but a sword. That's where that statement is going. There's a peace that is being defended. We are, in a sense, living in a day where we lack peace 
where we live in turmoil every day of our lives, where there's a battle to maintain what is peace in our lives, this peace that God has given a whole world of people who would sin against God and a battle against even our own sin that is causing us to be without peace in some sense now. And Jesus said this shouldn't take us by surprise, right? John 16, I have said these things to you that in, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I, I take that to mean two things. One, that the external peace that we've come to expect is elusive. And Jesus told us it would be. But there is this possibility of internal peace despite all of the external trouble. Amen? We can hold fast. No better picture of this than Psalm 1. If we had time, we would turn there. The picture is of a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And the Bible describes him as one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night and that he is like a tree that's planted by the water. Streams of water that yield fruit in its season. It's like a leaf that does not wither. And I think sometimes we live in a day where we feel like the whole stream is not just a a trickling stream, but it is a rushing torrent that is trying to take us out with every one of its currents. Every one of them. And yet we have a peace, as Paul described it in Philippians 4, that surpasses all understanding. That even in the midst of trouble, we know the Prince of Peace who is ruling and ruling perfectly and bringing all things to the completion of His kingdom. There's one final one here and we'll close. And that is that Jesus is the Prince of Peace among people. Jesus is the Prince of Peace among people. If you have a kingdom, it's more than just you and somebody else. Right? My house, maybe I call it a kingdom and I'm the king of my house, maybe, but it's not a kingdom. It's not a kingdom. And I'm no king. Jesus is a king over a kingdom. People. In fact, Revelation describes it as a multitude of people. I like to think that the multitude in Revelation will outnumber the multitude of angels that sang of the coming of Jesus. That as we sing for eternity of the coming of Jesus once and a second time, that we will sing of His praise and it will trump anything the angels could have ever done. (laughs) Because Christ has redeemed us by the blood of His cross. So there's a kingdom. Meaning, you and me and some of you over here and hopefully most of us in this room and many gathered for worship which means that the same peace that we enjoy with God, we must enjoy with one another. Paul talks about in Romans 12 that we are to bless those who persecute us and bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Listen to verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. And verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, 
live peaceably with all. And he goes on to describe what that looks like. Matthew 5, Jesus tells us that we're to be peacemakers and it's immediately followed up by the context of persecution. Not with people who would get along with us necessarily, but to be people of peace. It does not mean that we never act in bold, dramatic ways for various reasons that are biblical. But we're to be overall a people of peace. First and foremost, according to 2 Corinthians 5, we're ambassadors for Christ, right? We're we're pleading with people, come and be reconciled to God. Come and know Him. But then beyond that, we're living at peace with one another. Ephesians 2, back there, describes peace among the body of Christ. And it's not at the cost of truth. We've already said that He is the Prince of Peace with truth, right? But it's in all of our relationships. Relationship with your spouse, Relationship with your children. Relationship with others in your community. Be at peace. Our homes ought to be a place of peace. Our church ought to be a place of peace. Why? Because we're peacemakers and Christ has given us peace with God. An amazing gift. This is perhaps the hardest thing for us to do. We love what Jesus has done for us, but it is so hard for us to love one another, and yet the Bible calls us to do so. Praise God, as much as it depends on me, is not a whole lot. (laughs) Praise God that it depends upon Christ and what He's done for me. Amen, church? With every head bowed and every eye closed. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God. He is everlasting father, and he is our prince of peace. You may be here this morning living a life of constant turmoil, realizing that today maybe you're the one who has declared war on God. He's given you his Word as the expectation of your life. And like me, you violated it on every count. The Bible calls that sin and the Bible says that sin separates us from God. We are by nature enemies of God. Children of wrath. But praise God today, He will make peace with you through the blood of His Son. Say, what do I do, Pastor? Jesus has already done it. Today, You are justified by faith. The Bible teaches that we must turn from our sin. It's called repentance. And believe the gospel. As a sinner, cry out to God for mercy and grace. It is the only hope that we have. But the Bible says that it is real hope today. Because all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you don't know Christ today, would you you be that one? Would you cry out to Him, confessing your sins to Him, pleading for His forgiveness, and trusting in His Son? In just a few moments when we stand, I want to invite you to come. If that's you, right where you'll be standing, come down this aisle. Pastor, today today I want to trust in Jesus. If you've not already trusted in Him, I'll lead you today in doing that. And then you can follow Him in obedience and being baptized. 
Christ has already done the work in your heart today. You must be obedient. Others in this room, you're looking for peace. You're praying for peace. And you just need to trust in God today fully. Praying over one particular situation or another. But knowing that He is in charge. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to invite you to stand with me all across the room. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. And just as soon as I finish praying, the altar is open. You come. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that you would be our Prince of Peace. Someone in this room would know peace with you, peace with God. And that you would demonstrate that you are the one who brings calm even in the midst of the storm. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This altar is open. You come this morning. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.